Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Listen up, I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up. Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs. Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. Instacart for the win. Hello and welcome to Press Gazette's Journals and Matters podcast. I'm Freddie Mayhew. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. News editor at Press Gazette. And today I'm joined by Rachel Oldroyd, who is the managing editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Thank you for joining me, Rachel. You're welcome. Uh, now, I just want to start us off. Um, I was at the um, uh, Bureau's debate the other night uh, with famous Sir Harry Evans, um, and you mentioned, well, you, you sort of riffed off President Trump's uh, campaign quote, and you said, we need to make journalism great again. But um, I just wanted to, if, wonder if you could expand on that and, and just tell me what you meant by that. Um, so my point, or the, the statement was made in relation to um, all the criticism that we as an industry are getting, um, and you know this isn't just from Trump, it's it sort of really kicked off under Trump, we've had you know, fake news, um, the failing media, the failing media, and as of a couple of weeks ago we're now the enemies of the people. Um, 
But I don't think it's just coming from Trump, to be honest. You know, in this country, post-Leveson, post-phone um, hacking, the view of the media in the um, general public's eyes is really quite low. Um, and we need to raise our profile. We need to make, we need to add value to journalism again. We need to tell people how important journalism is and what society would look like without journalism. Um, you only really need to look across at the states where local press just no longer exists, where you've got two big papers and, and the agenda is, the news agenda is dominated by Fox News. You know, if we're not careful, we're going to be in a similar position in the UK. Fortunately, we have the BBC, but, you know, the press in this country is doing great, great journalism, but, you know, we are an industry in crisis and, and I think we've got to change our message from the negative to the positive and t- start telling people what a great thing journalism is and that it is has an intrinsic value to democracy and a functioning society. Um, and I don't expect you necessarily to have an immediate solution to that, but what do you no. think <laughs> what do you what do you think we can do? I mean to, to sort of get Well I think we start with changing the language. Right. You know, we as an industry are absolutely brilliant at telling everyone how what an awful time we're having and how the media's in crisis and um, how we're failing and you know the loss of our revenues. We need to change the whole language and whole debate and start talking about the positives and what journalism does for society and how a free, strong press is super important for society and therefore we attach a value to what we do and I think that if we start changing the language and start changing the debate um, and emphasising the importance of our industry, um, I think we will start changing public concept and um, public view of it and I think we are starting to see a change of that you know the argument actually between Ipso and Impress um, is actually being having a positive effect because both um, both bodies are starting to increasingly talk about the importance of the free press Um, and that's you know I think that is really helping but we as an industry we have to do the same. And I think you mentioned uh, the debate to sort of getting more journalists generally having more journalists Mm -hmm. to do more journalism because obviously with, with all this sort of alternative facts and everything going on, there's a lot more time and resources being pulled on just trying to establish what is true. Can we, do, can we get more journalists as we, as we are? Well, look, you know, it's something I feel completely passionate about, the how the number of journalists in our industry has you know, really, really reduced in, in my um, time as a journalist. I've been in the profession for 20 years, and I've just seen the number of journalists in newsrooms just fall through the floor, really, quite honestly. And the, the figures in the US is... Journalists, number of journalists working has halved in the past 10 years. You know, the Press Gazette has reported on this quite a lot about the drop in number of journalists in the UK. Um, and obviously, you know, you do have to take into account that lots of um, people who have gone into journalism have been moved into the online and they've, they've uh, moved into that world. But, you know, the type of journalism that you do on, if you're working on the online sections of newspapers, is not the type of journalism that people used to do mm. on, the, on the news desks of um, our, our national press. Uh, we need more journalists. I don't have a solution because obviously revenues are going down quite dramatically, but we do need, as a society, to find a way to pay for more journalists. And to touch on it briefly, I think fake news is sort of, uh, we're almost a bit fed up with so much going on. And so, so Harry Evans said the other night, you know, stop using the term. But um, what are, I mean, just to take away, what are your sort of thoughts on that? Is that a real threat in the UK to journalism, do you think? Well, 
First, to emphasise what Sir Harry Evans said about let's change the term, let's not use, let's talk about lies, let's talk about made-up stories. Um, and this goes back to my earlier point about let's change the language, let's stop, stop talking about fake news, there's no such thing as fake news, news is truth, it's fact. Um, and if we start, if we use the Trump language, then we shoot ourselves in our foot. Um, is it a problem in the UK? Well, I think it is a problem because we operate in a global world. Everybody gets their news in a different way these days. You know, some people get it in the old traditional way, some people get it through their social feeds, and their social feeds operate in a global environment. So, you know, I think it's as hard in the UK for certainly the generation under 25 to recognise um, fact from fiction as it is for um, a, a, you know, sort of a young person in America. Yeah, I suppose if we if we sort of riff on that and and, and uh, um, if we can just talk about um, the bureau as well and the McAlpine mm-hmm. sort of affair, sure. obviously I think it was your predecessor, wasn't it? Uh, so, well, two um, predecessors. Two predecessors. Certainly, Ian Overton stepped down from the bureau. It was in 2012 after um, basically wrongly implying that um, Lord McAlpine was um, the political figure who might be a paedophile. Uh, and there's been a big fallout from that, obviously. And it, and it appeared to be based on the testimony of, of one man who, who since um, turned out had, had wrongly identified Lord McAlpine. Um, I just want to... That's obviously slightly old news now, but um, do you think you were fairly treated on that, Bureau? Um, I think there is a bit of a lack of understanding about what actually went on. Um, it wasn't the bureau, a Bureau story. It wasn't a Bureau journalism. It was a Bureau journalist who had previously worked for the BBC for a long time before coming to us, um, and he was seconded to Newsnight for a week to redo a story that he had already done for the BBC. Um, And the Bureau made mistakes. We didn't make mistakes in our journalism because we didn't contribute to it journalistically, but, you know, we made mistakes, and the the people responsible for making those mistakes left the organisation very quickly, Um, And I would say that the organisation, obviously we went through, you know, a difficult time, um, but it did mean that we looked at all our processes, it meant that um, we added things to our processes to ensure things like this, things like that didn't happen again as far as possible. Um, You know, all organisations make mistakes and I don't see Ian Katz being asked about the issue very often. Um, you know, it often does still come up in conversation with the Bureau. Um, you know, it is five years old now. We are a different organisation without the people involved. And, you know, papers, journalists do make mistakes. So lessons learned from that are you've mm. changed processes, basically. Well, we haven't changed processes. I think we had very robust processes in, in place right from the beginning. You know, running a small organisation... Um, focused on investigative journalism, wanting to take on powerful people meant we had to have very robust processes in place. And the organisation was set up and run by people who had worked in the media for a long time. You know, we have a lot of experience in the Bureau. We might be a small team, but between us, we have a lot of experience. So it wasn't a case of changing processes. It was a case of re-looking at our processes, just as the BBC did, and identifying where there were any weaknesses or where there were any holes and making sure we plugged that and trying to ensure that we learnt lessons. Um, but, you know, I have to emphasise, we have really strong journalistic um, processes at the Bureau and always have, you know, we do fact-checking to the, to the level that American journalists do. You know, we are, we are really cautious about, um, or cautious is the wrong word, but we are, we are really careful about what we put out, um, 
you know, we got we got caught up in a story. We we were involved in it to a certain extent, and um, you know, we did what was necessary to move on from it. And we're still here, and I think that is, you know, we're still here, and we're strong, and we're growing, and yeah, I, we had definitely got over it. When did you see the reputation start to recover? Did, I mean, it must have taken a hit. Yeah, of course we took a hit. And, you know, the fact that we're still talking about it now, five years on, shows that it is still part of our history. Um, you know, in, honest, in all honesty, I think it probably took us a couple of years to, to get over it. But uh, we had an acting editor um, running the organisation post the event who was with us for 18 months. Um, by which point the board um, decided or felt that we had moved the organisation on um, and that we had you know, regained our reputation. Um, and from that point, we started to grow again. Switching tax slightly, um, what sort of drew you to, uh, to working at the Bureau? Because um, did you join in 2010, is that right? Yeah, I joined shortly after it launched. launched. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I became deputy to sort of six months after it, it officially launched. Um, so what drew me? Well, I became a journalist because effectively I wanted to change the world. Um, I believe in public interest journalism. I believe that journalism really can make a difference to the world. Um, I had been at the Mail on Sunday prior to joining the Bureau for 13 years. Much of the work that I had done at the Mail on Sunday was sort of investigative or reportage or very um, you know, public interest type journalism. Um, I wanted to change, personally. Um, and I was really inspired by what the Bureau was trying to do when it was launched. I really wanted to, really, really wanted to work for the organisation. And what's it, what's it been like? I mean, five years since, what's it? Um, well, it's been, you know, it is very different working for a small organisation than working for a big organisation like the Mail on Sunday. Mm. Very different working for an organisation that is driven by impact as opposed to readers and reach and um you know, we have we have you know all, all journalists have the same value system but our organization is really driven by impact and wanting wanting change as opposed to a commercial organization which you know, journalism aside is driven by profits and you know the, a, a need to to be a good functioning commercial organization um, which leads us neatly on to how you're sort of funded and how you run. So, but first of all, how many editorial staff do you have, roughly? Uh, well, we have just hired three new journalists uh, for a new project that we've, we've got up and running. So we, we've got 15 um, members of staff currently, not all 100% full-time. Um, but, um, yeah, we're, we're sort of a reasonable-sized team now. Uh, and it's not not for profit yeah. uh, organisation, but um, how does sort of the funding come about? Is there a commercial arm that's sort of selling your stuff out there, mm-hmm. or how do, how are you funded? So we're a not for profit organisation, totally funded by by philanthropy. Um, we have nine funders currently, um, mostly foundation funding. Um, we are in the process of expanding our funding, both in terms of the amount, but also the numbers of funders. Um, we're really trying to reach out to individuals now, build up individual giving as, as well as foundation giving. Um, we don't have a commercial arm. Um, we do sometimes make money from um, you know, organisations that we work with, and that obviously goes back into our core funding and it's used for our journalism. But um, we work collaboratively with, with publishing partners because we do feel that 
we need their reach and we need their readers um, and we sometimes need their journalists to help on our stories so um, particularly beat journalists you know if this, they've got a specialist journalist it's really helpful sometimes so we tend to work more collaboratively than on a commercial arrangement so is that but, but in that situation sort of a tie-up is it sort of situation or um, would, the, would that be something where you are being uh, you know you're being paid to do that no so it's a, it's an unpaid collaborative so relationship so we don't we're not we don't act as freelance journalists we act as um, an organization driven by uh, as I say driven by impact so when we are looking at an area of investigation and when we just when we're getting close to publication we work out how we can make our work have the most impact and that includes which is the best publishing partner to, to publish with so it's pure so it's purely funded through philanthropic giving yeah. yeah so donations basically donations yeah i mean we're modeled on um on american or similar american organizations um i've spent quite a lot of time in the states in the past couple of years um, visiting organizations like ProPublica and the center for investigative reporting which are really successful growing organizations in the u.s um, there's 150 not-for-profit journalistic organisations in the US of varying size. Um, and we've looked at what they do and how they do it, and we've tried to you know, introduce the model into the UK. Um, is there no worry that the funding will dry up at some point? Well, you know, I mean, this is a question that I get asked all the time, like, how sustainable is it and, you know, how long-term is it? Well, you know, I could ask the same question of traditional media these days. You know, how sustainable is... It is print journalism. Um, you know, we are, we live in very uncertain times. It's a media industry. You know, we live in a very fast changing world. Um, I, ha- I can't look into a crystal ball and say we're going to be around in ten years' time. I do, in my gut, feel that we will be around in ten years' time. And actually, if you look at how much the whole not-for-profit sector in the in journalism is growing in the US. Um, and how it is growing out beyond the US now as well. I do think there is a, a really strong sector here that um, is emerging. And are, are you making, uh, as an organisation, any attempt to find sort of a, a model where you can, you know, earn income and revenue? Because if we look, I'm just thinking, for example, like Zara, which obviously closed last year, mm-hmm. and um, Mark Watts, the editor, um, told me about sort of fumbled opportunities, what he said, to perhaps make selling data work mm-hmm. or make tie-ups mm-hmm. work. I mean, is that anything that you've looked at? It's not something that we've ruled out, for sure. Um, it's not something that we're actively pursuing at the moment, but we are going through a strategic review process um, where we will come up with a, you know, a new strategic plan for the organisation. Um, and, you know, that might be part of it. I don't know at this stage. I think, But I do think it's important to recognise that the ethos of our organisation is to use journalism to hold the powerful to account. And you know that's our mission, um, and the best way to pursue that mission is to focus on um, how we can employ the most journalists, um, and not focus on how do we get uh, commercial income from this or that or the other. I mean, you know, it is a slightly different focus. We 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 run very similar to an NGO. NGOs work on philanthropic funding, and the, you know, they, I don't think they're ever questioned about. Is your funding going to dry out? I think it's more how far can we grow, actually? And I think, I do think there's a huge opportunity. I think that particularly post-Brexit and post-Trump, the public is starting to understand how important journalism is and and they're starting to see that, or understand that journalists and journalism has been cut and that they will have to pay for it. I mean, you know, ProPublica has seen over 
million dollars pour into its its coffers since um, the election of Trump. That's in that's two and a half months. We're not in the same position in the UK because we haven't got Trump, but I do think lots of people in the UK are really, really concerned about how how this new sort of protectionism um, and new new political um, sort of environment on a global scale is impacting society. And journalism does really play an important part in trying to explain that. And I suppose the one thing I'd say is you're added risk with the kind of journalism that you're doing in particular, mm-hmm. I suppose, legal threats. Yeah. Um, have you fielded many of those in, your, in the sort of five years uh, being there, or are there any that have sort of troubled the organisation? So we have a retained lawyer, and we work you know, all the time on every story with our lawyers. Um, we, uh, are we bringing lawyers from quite an early stage often in our journalism? Um, our right to reply process is such that you know we take a very um, broadcast approach to right to reply actually. So you know we, we tend to give um, people a long time to reply. We we will put you know it might not necessarily just be one right to reply. It could be several. Um, and one of the other reasons for working collaboratively with big publishing platforms is you do bring their weight you know to bear. On, on subjects that you know, yeah. on areas where there is somebody or a or an organisation that that could be quite forceful. So there's some security in the collaboration. The I think that, I think the collaboration. I mean, Richard Sandbrook was talking about this at the event actually about you know small organisations operating in an environment of investigative journalism, which by its very nature you're going to be investigating figures and, and organisations that have money and can sue you. So you know, it's not. It's not a. It doesn't mitigate all risk by working with um, publishing partners, but it you know it helps. And just talk about stories. I mean, how do they normally come into you? Then what sort sort of how does that normally arrive at the bureau's desk? Or is it normally people phoning in uh, anonymously, or are you you mining data? Or what sort of how do you? Normally so you know, like any newsroom, to be honest, um, we have. Um, all our journalists are looking at areas to, to work on it all, all the time. They have their own contacts. They come up with their own story ideas. Um, we occasionally work with freelancers who come in with a great story that they know is going to take a long time um, and are looking for extra resource to help them do that. And usually it's resource in terms of, well, obviously in terms of money, but also in terms of a team that can help them work on it. Um, and we have whistleblowers that, that come to us with stories. Um, you know, I think one of the key in terms of how we decide on our stories is, is it ambitious enough? Is it a big enough project? Is it something where we can bring something, an added um, asset to the picture? So, you know, is, is there data? We do lots of data stories. Um, is there documents that we can get? Is there a whistleblower that we can work with? And uh, presumably sometimes these stories take a long time to stand up, mm. that sort of aftermath. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we, really, we really go for the, the stories that you know, do take a long time to work on. Um, you know, we're, not about, we're not a publishing platform, we do have a website, but we're not a publishing platform, so we're not looking for stories every five minutes. It's not, you know, can we turn this around in a week? Do we, you know, how long is it going to take? That's never really a question. It's, um, we do project plans at the beginning of our stories, work out what we need to get, what, where we're going with the story. Um, and we do, we are as ambitious as we can be on, on every single story. Some stories will take six months, nine months before we get them out. I was going to say, what's the longest it's ever taken to sort of get a story published for you guys? Um, well, I mean, that's a, 
sort of asking the wrong question really how you know because it's not what's the longest it takes it's you know how much time is required so um our perhaps one of one of the investigations we did that has taken the most time to get to the end result was a big piece of work that we undertook in our, in the first year which was looking at european structural funds which took a team of six people nine months mainly because the data didn't exist at european level um, and we had to go to every single member state and often down to mayoral offices, sometimes down to fax machines to actually pull the data together into a massive big database. And then that took in itself four months. And then we had to mine it for stories. And then we had to go and report on those stories. So, you know, it was a process. Um, our drones project has been running five years. But obviously we publish quite a lot on that. More recently, um, stories that we have done, um, we ran a story last year with the Sunday Times looking at um, a contract that Bell Pottinger had with the Department of Defence in the US. Um, and that was a six-month project because that came out of a big, big data examination and exploration of um, Department of Defence spending in the US. And then we discovered this contract. You know, The process of building that database took three months. Um, then we had to analyse it for stories, then we had to work out which stories we were going to pursue, and then you get to the journalism bit. Um, and that take, that took you know a couple of months to track down somebody who prepared to talk about it, um, then persuading that person um, you know, that we could be trusted and building up relationships, and then doing the, the, the reporting from America, the reporting from Iraq. You know, it takes time. And does that rank among, among some of the stories you're sort of most proud of doing? Is there any that stick in the mind? Um, you know, I, I, I'm proud of pretty much everything we put out. I mean, genuinely. Because we're, we're very focused, so um, we're not a news desk that is about filling space. We are a news operation that is about coming up with stories that serve a public interest. So, you know, every story, even if it is a small story that took us a month, um, it's, it's doing a job that I believe in. Um, and our last February, the, the Bureau was awarded, was it uh, £500,000 for a, it was a three-year local journalism project, wasn't it, mm-hmm. from Google? Mm-hmm. Um, can you just sort of briefly outline that for me and, um, and, and just say if there's any sort of stories coming out of it? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, we got, it was €660,000 um, from Google to launch a project which is focused on um, compiling databases that will provide Um, public interest stories at a local level. So um, most of the work that we have done up to now have been very national focused. We've focused on national issues or, you know, we've we've published the national picture of data. Um, And actually, I feel that one of the biggest democratic deficits that is happening in this country currently is actually at a local level. And there is this huge amount of data that is becoming available increasingly as the government opens itself up. And, you know, it is still difficult, but... Government data is becoming more and more available. Um, and so we're looking at applying our investigative skills with big data skills to um, create quite difficult databases. This is not, you know, sort of reactive um, journalism. It really is building the databases that, are, that we will then offer to a network of local journalists. And that's um, the data lab. That's well. the data lab, yeah. So, you know, we have now recruited the team. We're about we're on the verge of making an announcement about that um, in a couple of weeks, um, and we will be seeing stories coming out of that in the next few months. Um, and one thing I, I, I did want to talk to you about was the um, 
Well, there was a, uh, a report uh, published just the other week about uh, protecting whistleblowers and mm-hmm. sources from soil you saw. And there's been lots in the news about the risk to uh, whistleblowers and sources from changes to the law, the, the proposals of, of amendments to the Official Secrets Act, which has been dubbed the Espionage Act, and the Digital Economy Bill, and all sorts of things going through that, that present a risk to, to public interest journalism. And I just wondered, um, well, first of all, how, how do you as an organisation go about sort of trying to protect Well, we take it very, very seriously. I mean, very seriously. Um, You know, it's very hard these days to be able to completely um, promise total anonymity. You know, we've seen seen issues in the US where, you know, journalists have met sources in parks and they've still been able to be tracked because because the intelligence services have, have, have looked at their locations from their phones. So... You know, it is really difficult, but, but you know, any responsible journalist has to take the protection of their source seriously, and we really, really do. Um, I think that there is a huge attack or potential attack going on um, at the moment on journalism. I think Section 40 is really, really problematic. I mean, probably problematic. It could have a huge impact on an organisation like the Bureau. I think the changes to the Official Secrets Act are, are just... You know, they come from a different age. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's almost like we're going backwards. Uh, the use of Reaper, you know, they are... The freedom of the press is under as much attack in this country as it is in the US. It's just, it's, it's just um, less upfront. It's not, it's not coming from the mouth of our Prime Minister, but it is coming from our government. And uh, is um, the Bureau regulated? Are you with it? So you we, we haven't signed a regulator no. yet. We're, we've taken the sort of the Guardian and, and um, independent and FT approach. And waiting to see... If Section 40 did come in, that would be... Well, it would, it, yeah, it would be a huge deal for us. You know, okay. it, I mean, hugely problematic for us. I mean, we're a small organisation, you know. We, the costs that we could incur could, could basically bring the organisation to, it, to its knees. Yeah. Um, and it would force us to, to sign up to one of, the, one of the bodies, whichever body the, the government decides to... Well, you know, obviously impressed at the moment, but whether it will accept it so is, is you know, it's, it's being debated currently, so... What's your view on impress? Are they, are they, is that state regulation, effectively, for, for the Bureau? Look, I, I am, you know, as an organisation, we haven't got, we haven't taken a, a line as yet, because I think there's so much debate and discussion going on, and... Um, I, th- I think we need to see. I think we're in early status, to be really honest. And presumably a lot of your stories at the Bureau are coming from whistleblowers and uh, anonymous sources. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any idea of sort of percentage of stories? That, uh, is that sort of the mainstay? Or? Um, it, no, I don't think it's the mainstay. We often use whistleblowers, but um, we find the whistleblowers, if you know what I mean. So, um, you know, a lot of our stories will work with insiders work with people that we've tracked down who used to work at organisations that we were reporting on or government bodies that we were reporting on. Um, you know, we try to talk to as many people as possible. So do we get leaks? And Do most of our stories come from leaks? Um, again, sometimes we get leaks in the process of our reporting. But yeah. it's, fundamental, it's fundamental to the way you work. Yeah, I mean, we get, we get information all the time. I mean, that is investigative journalism. Good investigative journalism discovers information and is given information... Um, through good reporting, through talking to lots of people. Um, and uh, sort of everyone is, is saying at the moment, but I, but I wanted to hear from you, why, why do you think public interest journalism is more vital now than, than it ever has been? I don't think it is more vital now than it ever has been. Public interest journalism has always been vital. Um, 
But I do think that journalism is more vital now than ever before because we are moving into a world where you know, lying from our elected officials is becoming acceptable. What is going on in the US is, is quite unbelievable. I mean, politicians have always lied to us. There's always been propaganda. There's always been dodgy dossiers. But, you know, it's happening at a level of audacity that are just, you know, it's just completely new. Because we're seeing lies, then we're seeing challenges, and then we're seeing denials that that was ever said. So there's obviously a lot of time and resource and journalism required to constantly fact-check what is coming out of um, our administrations. Um, and it's in the UK as well. I mean, obviously not completely different scale, but nonetheless, we are, we are and we operate in the global world and, you know, we're having to fact-check Trump as much as the US journalists. So, you know, I think there's so much journalism that is going into that element at the moment that is distracting from all the other really important things that we, have, we should be covering. You know, what is happening in our social services? What is happening in, in the NHS? What is happening... In our societies, why did you know? Why is there so much pain being felt in this country and in and in the US and in Europe? What's going to happen in Brexit? There's, there's so many big, really, really, really complex issues actually that need reporting on. Um, I, I just, I just don't think we have enough journalists to cover it. Yeah, certainly Trump and his uh, and his uh, fake news show is, uh, is you, you know, I was in, isn't it? it really is. I was in the US just before Christmas and. Um, uh, had a conversation with a very senior political reporter at the Washington Post who's saying, you know, the problem is it's not just the political death that is reporting on the administration now. We're having to pull in and we are going to have to increasingly pull in all our specialist reporters because if a, you know, if something is said about the transport, for example, we need the tr- transport expert to tell us whether what they're saying is true. Yeah. And how do you report on Trump? Yeah. It's a big question that American journalists are asking themselves. How do we report on this administration? And, you know, it's the same in this country. How do we report on Brexit when actually there has been not very much coverage of Europe because as a society we've not really been that interested in Europe. It's very complicated. Um, And suddenly we're having to get our heads around these really complex laws and mechanisms and how Europe works and how we can pull out. And, you know, the the Times has just announced a massive team on Brexit, and I think that's brilliant. I think you know every single newspaper should be putting big, big teams on Brexit. But if they have limited resources, so you know if they're putting big teams on Brexit, which is really important, what bits are they not covering? Yeah, um, and and just as a final note, uh, any tips for, from you for anyone listening who might be an aspiring investigative journalist? Well, um, I always tell you know, sort of young student um, journalists that one of the biggest things that they can do is make sure they're skilled up in in sort of computational skills because this is a whole new growing area, how we can use tech skills to help investigate. That's not just about data, but it's also about using tech skills to do really advanced searching, to um, explore who is behind all these fake news sites, for example. Um, Then there's, there's skills that a new generation of journalists will need and they are skills that are in huge demand and they're skills that you know people from my generation just really 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 struggle with and you know to bring those skills into investigative journalists and then learn the skills of investigative journalism will make somebody a very powerful reporter. Rachel Aldroyd thank you for joining me. Okay thank you.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.